So, good evening, everyone, and um, congratulations. First day of practice. And, um, you know, for some of us, it may have not been peachy, rosy, creamy. And uh, to sit with ourselves, um, as a Selenese Buddhist monk, Bhante Gunaratana, he says that it takes a certain type of gumption to to sit with ourselves, a certain type of courage and guts. We're meditating in a very beautiful place, and yet in the inside, um, it could be a little bit of a cooker at times. So I'll just start with a reading from Hafiz, and it's called For Three Days. And reminds me of um, retreat life. And it says that not many teachers in the world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone, three days in your closet, that would do. And that means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh-uh. No writing either, that would be cheating. The sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you are normally sedated. But, dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. But you might be wondering, where's the ruby? And so, another reading from Bandi Gunaratana says that somewhere in this process of meditation you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy and that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way but perhaps you just haven't noticed Sound familiar? (laughs) A mind shrieking madhouse, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Yeah. But no problem. And we are working with uh, priming the pump of our practice, and this is very normal to, as you prime a pump, it takes time for the water to flow. To train a horse, it takes time for to um, get the horse trained, to learn an instrument, anything takes time. And I want to just speak briefly on the importance of how we are with ourselves in the practice. And if there's any offering that I could invite you to work with and to practice with is to practice with, with kindness. I think maybe we see very clearly just at times how hard we can be with ourselves. And yes, we're using the breath and all of these practices to help to train the mind, but it's the practice is about our hearts, ourselves, our lives. And to train with great kindness is um, furthers. Payment Children speaks about sometimes, you know, you can train a dog to sit, stay, come. You can train it very unkindly, very fiercely, and the dog will learn those commands And often that type of dog gets a little bit neurotic, anxious, and confused. And you can train another dog with a lot of kindness. It will eventually learn those commands as well. But it will feel more confident, assured, and uh, flexible. And I think in some ways this pertains to our practice of practicing with a sense of kindness. And I think we meet this... uh, 
as Carl Jung, Jung would say, this enemy who must be loved, which is ourselves, that the way that we can be with ourselves is very hard. Bob Sharples, an Australian um, meditation teacher, this is from his book called Calming the Mind, he says, don't meditate to fix yourself or to heal yourself or to improve yourself or to redeem yourself, rather do it as an act of love. In this way, there's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement, for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers a possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds that are trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. Very powerful words. I think we all know about the subtle and sometimes not so subtle aggression of self-improvement and the endless guilt of not doing enough and trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. How about meditation as an act of love? But some of you may not fully believe me because uh, meditation, we must be made of the right meditative stuff. And so this reading is dedicated to you. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills and be cheerful and ignore aching, aches and pains, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles and eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment and face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, then you must be the family dog. <laughs> so there you go. Being made of the right meditative stuff. The sense of levity is important because if it's not funny, it isn't. And uh, the sense of practicing with, yes, a sense of, uh, I'm going to speak a little bit about what gets us into the practice, but also that way of holding it with some kindness, some compassion. And I know we hear these words, we understand them, and I want to invite you to like sit with that. What would it actually mean to experience a sense of this befriending, the way that we hold our practice. I invite you to work with this, to open to this, to receive this. So this retreat is called uh, Finding Freedom in the Body. Mindfulness is a gateway to liberation. That's quite a mouthful. What is this liberation? What's meant by liberation? Finding freedom in the body. Mindfulness is a gateway to liberation. And to me, liberation speaks to a deeper understanding of the meaning of life. Making peace. Trying to understand more about suffering and its causes and so forth. And I want to just um, maybe just speak a little bit to the sojourn of Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha. Always I feel like on the first night of the retreat, the importance of uh, what, do we, what brings us here? And what I love about the story of the Buddha is that um, it's such a universal story that I can personally relate to. I think we all know that, um, for many of us know that uh, before the Buddha became the Buddha, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. He was born into a very wealthy family. His father was a king, and he was destined to be a great king as well. And he lived in a very, um, you know, beautiful, had a beautiful life up to the age of 29. He had everything that 
anyone would want. He probably would have already gotten the iPhone 6S. <laughs> and in his 29th year, some realizations or awakenings happened to him that changed the course of his life. As if for his first 29 years living in a dream world of pleasure and lots of just wonderful things, uh, he awakened to these realities of life that are known as the heavenly messengers. Kind of an interesting name. What are the heavenly messengers? The, the truth and the reality of aging, illness, death, and awakening. And they're called heavenly because they awaken us. They awaken us. What is this life? So Jane Kenyon, she writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, ripe flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. And I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day, just like this day, but one day I know. One day I know it will be otherwise. The Buddha realized, or Siddhartha Gautama realized in his 29th year that it was going to be otherwise. And even though he was destined to become a king and wealth and everything else, his heart broke open to what is this life? Recognizing the realities, the inescapable realities of aging, illness, and death. And finally, that last messenger was, was a monk, a holy person, dedicating their life towards awakening when he found out that, there was, that this was a possibility. This is the fourth heavenly messenger. He knew that this is what he must do. It's that he too must dedicate his life for awakening, that this was the only thing that was really important to him. And I really want to say that I think for all of us here in the room, I trust that we have all met the messengers. I don't, I don't think we could be here. You know? Who wants to come and here and just sit and have the mind barreling down the hill utterly out of control? You know, like, who would want to come unless there was something that, that, that brought us here? And so I trust that for all of us here, we, we have met the messengers in one way or another. The realities of aging and illness and death. The possibility that perhaps if I begin to practice that there's another way trying to understand this life. My fourth heavenly messenger was a gentleman named Bill Jackson. And um, after flunking out of college, where I was majoring in um, getting high, getting drunk, <laughs> trying to have girlfriends, and going skiing, because I really love skiing, northeastern Vermont, wasn't very successful in the girlfriend department, but um, flunked out and was remitted back in warning. And my mother, she's, she just begged me, Bobby, isn't, there must be something. And so I looked in the course catalog and I didn't want to take any more reading and writing and arithmetic and science and not that these are, these are wonderful subjects. I was just so lost and confused. Part of that lost confusion was as a young child, by the time I was nine, I'd lost my brother, who I shared a room with, my best friend, who lived across the street, and my grandpa, who lived downstairs. And so, you know, it was only for many years later that I realized just how lost and confused I was growing up, trying to figure out, what is this life? So I was touched by the messengers early, you could say, but was very lost. But I looked in that course catalog and saw this class. It said, Wisdom of the East... And then in smaller letters, colon, 
Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. But I saw the East, and that something there perked my interest. And the only thing that I knew about the East, and it's, it's kind of, I know you, you may laugh, but I, I, I mean it in all seriousness, that growing up, I, I, I used to go to, uh, I was very fortunate uh, at times to go to some Chinese restaurants. And I loved the food. I loved the artwork on the walls. Even the waiters and waitresses, they were different than Howard Johnson's. That's kind of like the Denny's equivalent out here. And there was something like the colors, the dragons, the food, the Buddhas, the laughing Buddhas. There was something there that just, there was something magical or mystical or so different than my Western heritage. And so I decided to take this class. I felt like I had nothing to lose. I was totally lost. And I came into the class, and Bill Jackson was my professor, and he's sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I had never had a professor like this before. This was the early 70s in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And um, he began to talk, and the way that he held himself his sincerity, his integrity, his wisdom. I just, there was, as time went on, like, I realized this guy knows something. I mean, like, he really knows something. And I'm not quite sure what he knows, but I want to know what he knows. I had never met a person that was embodied in that type of way. He was really my fourth heavenly messenger like showing, like his example is being that there's another way and I, I want to learn more. And he assigned to us to read the Tao Te Ching by Latsu, The Way of Life, the book of the Tao, which I just fell in love with. I just couldn't believe that anyone had written down these reflections about life, had thought about life in this way. I'd never been exposed to any type of words like this ever before. And I just... dove into the Tao Te Ching and and just fell in love with the wisdom. And I came across in epigram number 47, there's 81 different poems, and, and this one really spoke to me. It said that there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. I never had even considered or thought about this ever before, that if I wanted to know something, it was saying, I need to begin to look inside here. I had never thought about that in my entire life up to that point. And I began to look in here. That's where I began my practice many years ago now, over 40 years ago. So he, he, this, that there's, there's another way, and I trust for, here, for us to be here in this practice, we too have something has, that there's another way that brings us here. Because of my background, as, you know, so I got more and more into meditation, <clears throat> and I was just really drawn, like, what is this life? And when I uh, began practicing vipassana, insight meditation, my first teacher was uh, Rina Surakar, who was a professor at uh, the California Institute of Asian Studies, later becoming the California Institute of Integral Studies, and she was a Buddhist scholar as well as a vipassana teacher, and um, began to take retreats with her, and I, I just so deeply connected with this practice of insight meditation. And when the opportunity came, she said, well, Bob, you want to come with me to Burma and meet my teacher, Tungpu Lucero, who's a forest monk in Burma, part of the far- forest Burmese tradition. And I said, let's go. And so off I went with a few other people in 1980, um, went to the remote forests of Burma where I ordained temporarily as a Buddhist monk under Tungpu Lucero. And right at the very beginning, Tampulu said, oh, you know, these, these forest monks, like, you know, I think because of my, 
you know, growing up with a lot of death, I was very interested in death. I want to get, and, and this is all these people were talking about. They were going to the cemeteries, doing cemetery meditation. They were doing these practices on the body, and I was like drawn to this. But Seto, like he, he kind of said, like he says, oh, so you wanted to do this. So there's a 32 parts of the body meditation. Let's, let's teach you this. And um, that was my introduction to the 32 parts of the body was with Tampu Lucero. Sasaraha says that within my body are all the sacred places of the world and the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. So Tempo Lucero, this is what he has to say about the 32 parts of the body meditation, that this is the most eminent among all the satipatthanas or the foundations of mindfulness. This meditation is unlike any other. You'll soon find out about that. This meditation is unlike any other. It is brought to light and taught only in the times when the Buddhas arise. So... So you're probably wondering what are the body parts. You'll get very intimate with them in the next few days. But there's 20 solids and 12 liquids. And we practice like the liquids in groups, four groups of five parts. And the solid parts, is the four groups of five parts in the solids and two groups of liquids that are six parts. So just so you have a little sense of what I'm talking about here, so here goes the list. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bioflem, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. <laughs> That's quite a list, huh? <laughs> You're going to get to know them. So this practice is found in the first foundation of mindfulness. So the Buddha taught four foundations of mindfulness. The mindfulness of the body, the mindfulness of feeling tones, the mindfulness of mind states, states of mind, and the mindfulness of the dharmas, which are a collection of teachings to support deeper realization. Within the first foundation of the body, there are six practices. Many of us in the West are very familiar with the first three. Many of you have been exposed to them. The mindfulness of breathing, right? Breathing in, breathing out. We've been doing this all day. Mindfulness of what bodily posture you're in, standing, sitting, lying, walking. And the last is bringing mindfulness to our different activities, eating, showering, folding laundry, and so forth. These are very commonly taught and practiced in our meditation centers. Then there's three other practices that are in the foundation of the body that are less practiced. And yes, the 32 parts of the body is one of those practices. And then there's the practice of the meditation on the four primary elements, solidity, liquidity, motion, temperature, earth, air, water, fire. And uh, it is said that, of course, all of the Body parts are made from these essential elements. And of course, if we go into science, protons, neutrons, electrons, and a lot of space. And then the last practice is um, a ra rather graphic practice on nine contemplations of uh, a body that from the first day of death until it turns to dust. And so there's nine graphic uh, descriptions of various stages of decomposition. You have to wonder why, why did, was that there? <laughs> and actually, uh, there's an old Hindu proverb that says that everyone thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. And so perhaps sitting by a body, watching it turn to dust, we will really begin to get that this will indeed happen. So that's the first foundation of, uh, of, of mindfulness. And so the 32 parts of the body is one of the practices that's, that's taught. Very important practice. And actually, for those of you that are in the mindfulness world, the MBSR world, you're probably familiar with the body scan. Anybody in that world? Raise your hand. 
So there's a number of you, yeah. So you, we could consider that the 32 parts of the body is the great, great grandmother or grandpa of all body scans. This is where the body scan comes from, is the 32 parts of the body meditation. And even though we can say that uh, you know, this is part of the first foundation, all of these foundations are interrelated in the sense that they will bring up also, as we go into the body, it will bring up various feeling tones, it will bring up different states of mind. It's all right there. I'll actually share a little bit about that later. And so as I mentioned, that I, so I learned this practice in 1980. <clears throat> and um, eventually after I left the monastery, entered into the advanced practice of getting a partner, having children. Um, and I was you know, fortunate enough um, to, I did, I've been teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction for many years, but I always kind of kept in my back pocket the 32 births of the body meditation. I'd, I'd still practice it from time to time, I'd chant it from time to time. And this went on and off, believe it or not, because I'm now 61, so I've lived a few years, um, that I practiced it on and off for 26 years. So that takes me, I learned it in 1980, so about 2006, I kind of like all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, the 32 parts of the body is a powerful practice. It took me 26 years to realize that, even though my teacher was trying to hit me over the head with it much earlier. And uh, I wish I could have this blown up, this picture, but it's a picture of three cows in a pasture from the far side, Gary Larson. And they're eating grass. This is what they do. Every day of their lives is they eat grass. And one of them has an epiphany one day out in the pasture. One cow starts saying to the others, Hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. We're eating grass. We're eating grass. So in the same way, wait a minute, we got a body. We got a body. We got a body. Like, like I just woke up. There's a body in here. I've just been living here. There's more to it. The Buddha speaks from the Samyutta Nikaya that within this fathom long body, a fathom is a maritime measurement about it, the length of a human being within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions. There's the, there's the three foundations, the first, the foundations of mindfulness right there in that sentence. Within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions lies our world. Its origin, its cessation, its pathway to freedom is within this fathom-long body. Right here, within the body. And so it seemed like after about 26 years, I, this just really awakened to me. Like, this is an incredibly powerful practice. And, and um, I, I wanted to share it and to practice with others. So I've actually been teaching this in, in Inside Santa Cruz uh, for, this will be my 10th year teaching uh, the practice. And we've been coming, Mary Grace and I and Marcy, here for many years, and happy that Christian's joining us this year for a number of years as well. But there's a longer, there's a few different ways to practice this, and we're doing the weak version. But the, the traditional version is three, I'm sorry, 33 weeks or eight months. <laughs> and uh, so actually at Inside Santa Cruz, uh, we're entering into our 10th year of doing this. And you would think, would people actually come for eight months, 33 weeks? Well, the answer is yes. It's very surprising. Not everyone finishes, of course, but um, there are a few diehards that, I, that go through this. And of course, I have a good friend that's a professor of anatomy at our local community college, Cabrillo, and we go on a little field trip halfway through so we can really begin to see that these inner parts of the body with, with dissection. So let me speak a little bit about this practice. And as I think there's a few valid questions that need to be asked that I don't have any answers to. The first question is, why these parts? Head, hair, body, hair, nails, cheek, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. 
why these parts? Don't know. If I look through the canonical literature, there's not much explanation on why these parts or why this order. Why is feces next to the brain? Did the Buddha have a sense of humor? Or is there some truth there? We talk about this, the digestion systems actually known as the second brain. The neuroscientists are beginning to understand these connections. Why these parts, why this order, I don't know. But th- this, is my, this comes out of just my own experience practicing with these parts for so many years that what I can say about it from my own experience is that these parts are kind of like um, gateways into the body, like diplomats. Yes, they're missing a ton of parts. Why didn't this part, that part? I don't know. But these parts are gateways in. For example, my beloved partner, she has diabetes. And so when we were in the digestive area, when she was doing the practice with me, it just naturally led to the, to the, to the pancreas and, and to begin to get in touch with what's there and the grief that came up over the lack of being able to produce insulin and potentially in time working on some sense of reconciliation with her pancreas. And so I, I, I think what I want to just encourage as we do the practice to consider these parts as gateways into all of the parts. It's like a hologram. that They enter into all the parts of the body. So we're just entering into those parts that may take us to many more. Why this order? Well, there seems to be some semblance of, uh, that makes some sense. So for example, the first grouping, head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin. These are the parts when we look at each other, that's what we see, besides clothes. It's head here, body here, nails, teeth, and skin. Then, of course, we begin to open it up into flesh, which is, um, and muscles, and sinews, of the, all the connective tissue, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. And it appears to be quite a jump from bones to bone marrow, then bone marrows to the internal organ kidneys. But then when we begin to understand that bone marrow is, is uh, the product, you know, is for blood formation, and kidneys is blood purification. So it's, it's kind of interesting how that all works. And I think it's very clever that we begin this practice on what we see on the outside because there's an incredible amount of fussing going on with head hair, body hair, <laughs> nails, teeth, and skin. The cosmetic industry knows about this. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And how many of us have looked in the mirror and said, oh shit, <laughs> I hate this. I, I, how many times have we looked in that mirror filled with shame, Despair, disgust, comparison, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin is huge. It's huge. All of what goes on in our relationship with these parts of the body. Actually, a a friend of mine who was a former uh, chief financial officer at some corporation, um, she actually took one of my very first classes and... um, she put together an Excel sheet, very curious. Well, how much have I spent on head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin? And so she's got this whole list here, you know, like, like on head, hair, shampoo, conditioners, curling irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments, and body hair, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow, eyebrow wax, nails, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, Teeth, toothpaste, dental floss, toothbrushes, electric toothbrushes, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, skin, lotion, moisture, cleansing, makeup, peels, facials, laser work, skin cancer, skin cancer surgeries, with free, and some with freezing. So anyway, she's got a whole list here. She's spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And I think it's very powerful for us to begin to go into the body, to penetrate in. As far as how we orient our practice, 
which is a, a, and this is a very unusual meditation practice in that there's a prescription to how to practice this. And it's called, it's kind of older language. It's from the Path of Purification, the Sudhimaga, but it's called what they call the sevenfold skill in learning. But essentially what that means is that you must know these parts verbally, then know it mentally, and know the color and the shape, the location of where the part is, the direction, is it above or below the waist, or both above and below the waist, and its boundary or delimitation. Then in addition, its definition and its function. And so there's kind of a map, and we'll, we'll be going through these parts tomorrow in that same type of precision, sensing into knowing it verbally, then mentally, the color, the shape, the location, and so forth, and then penetrating into the definition and the function of the part. And to become aware of what it evokes, physically at first, with sensing into the body physically, and what may it give rise mentally and emotionally. So there's a part of this practice that we actually, this is why you can see me riff, riff off these body parts very quickly because I've been chanting them for years. So we'll be chanting these parts out loud and that the chanting, the verbal part, sets the tone for us to know it mentally. And then from mentally we can begin to get into the color and the shape and so forth. So actually I think I'd like to just invite you all tomorrow morning that we'll begin the chanting and We'll have a, in our first morning sit at 6.30, we'll sit for a half hour in silence and then we'll last 10 minutes or so, we'll, um, we'll chant the parts. And when you come in tomorrow morning, I'll have a chair by the door with some uh, handouts of the parts, of the sheets of the parts on there so you can use that. So I want to say that this practice is in some ways incredibly personal. And it's also incredibly impersonal. So it's kind of like both. Now, I'll speak to the personal. And actually, this is a very beautiful piece that was written by a dear friend of mine who's actually uh, was, 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 uh, diagnosed with cancer. She's doing pretty good now. But she decided to, and she's a physician herself, and she decided to practice this while she was in chemotherapy. So I just want to read a few things of what she says. She's meditating on her head here, and it's, it's begun to fall out. She says, I can feel where my head hair connects to my scalp and where my scalp gives rise to my head hair. It is so alive up there, even as my hair falls out. There is the prickly and the slightly painful sensation in the scalp where I can sense that the head hairs are falling out. They need to fall out. They're falling everywhere, on my shoulders, all over my inside of my hats, on my sheets. Tonight is the night to shave my head. Head hair. Body hair. I can trace with my mind the body hair on all the surfaces. Some of the body hair is falling out too and not growing back. There is less of it than usual. I am becoming hairless like a child. Body hair. So she goes on. Beautifully, beautiful, these descriptions of sensing into the body. I remember one person telling me that she was meditating on head hair, and, and then what arose in her awareness was this memory for stroking her dying grandmother's hair. And then the sadness that that came out. So in some ways it's incredibly personal working with this practice. It's a beautiful poem by Martha Elliott that says that our history is here inside our body. Our body is our storehouse of all of our learnings and thoughts and experiences. And so we're going into the body and our life is coming up. So we, we're considering this practice as an insight practice to begin to get in touch with what it's evoking physically, mentally, and emotionally. It also can have this aspect of the impersonal. For example, 
The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces new head hair every two to five years, unless you're me. The body replaces new eyebrows, consisting of 450 hairs every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to me read this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, in any moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as yesterday. So there's aspects of this practice that are incredibly impersonal, revealing the ownerless nature of things. So we, you know, and I'll speak more about this um, in another talk, this paradox. Actually, Christiane and I, we were talking about this earlier today, like this practice. It, it's so incredibly personal and it's so incredibly impersonal. It kind of has both aspects and, and to this investigation. And we can't deny this personal part of us can't bypass this personal story, but perhaps we can begin to see more clearly in it, perhaps through it, and become less enslaved by it. These are the liberating qualities of the Dharma. So in the ancient text, it speaks about the benefits of this practice. One, that um, it's gradual eradication of the view of I, me, and my, of, of self, and I've just spoken about that. It also has these qualities very rich uh, in the traditions of it being used as a healing meditation. And I remember many years ago, there was a woman named Barbara who uh, came to the monastery with, uh, the, with lung cancer when I was living in the monastery. And um, the monks immediately gave her the 32 parts of the body meditation to practice. And she had had um, a, a diagnosis or a prognosis from her physician that she had under one year to live. Well, the year went by and she was still alive and she wrote a postcard to her oncologist and just wrote, still here, Barbara. <laughs> and this went on for about six years. Eventually she did pass. But even as she passed, she died with deep healing in her heart. And, you know, there was no explanation on how she had survived this long. She always said to me, it was the 32 parts of the body. This is a poem that she wrote shortly before her death. It's called Of Life and Death. It's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death but I've broken free from the stranglehold of fear. That's pretty good, huh? At Christmas we celebrate the wonder of birth, and at Easter the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? Without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss, abyss from which all life emerges drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts. And speaking of healing, I, I just received this just two days ago from another person who has been practicing the 32 parts. And this was just really gave me chills. She says that I've been disembodied for the most of my life as a result of very early and sustained child abuse by many abusers. Your teachings and exercises on the 32 parts of the body have allowed me to claim my body as my own, organ to muscle, to veins, to fluids, and skin. I have removed the hands of unwanted perpetrators from my body and more from my mind. My heart has deep compassion for this body of mine that has not been mine. I have new respect for what my body is and has always been. It is a work in progress. Thank you. And I might also add that as I began to understand the intricate relationship 
and purpose of all of these bodily systems, I began to regret damage to my body by my own choices over the decades of my life. Too much sun led to melanoma. Too little exercise led to weakened muscles, reduced core strength and limited breath. Too much alcohol led to blackouts and poor sexual decisions. Extreme measures to lose weight contributed to a yo-yo cycle of losing and regaining, losing weight again. I neglected and abused my body. I now forgive my injuries to my body and work to respect this powerful system, my boat. I more and more inhabit my boat as it carries me through the remaining days of my life. My boat is pointed in the direction of a shore of my understanding. I tend to it with gratitude and increasing love. That's healing. Yeah. So I've mentioned um, the benefits of the gradual eradication of the view of self, healing practice. It also speaks about conquering of boredom and delight. You can become the conqueror of fear and dread. You can bear cold and heat. Uproots pride and clinging. Amasses deep insight will be intelligent. Attains jhana or deep meditative concentrative absorptions, attains Nibbana, complete freedom and peace. And so tomorrow we will um, work with these practices and um, we'll explore this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions that lies our world. And so what I'd like to suggest is that we just do a short little practice now being that this has been quite a day. And there's a wonderful meditation that my teacher, Tompu Lucero, taught during his last uh, time and visit tour, you could say, into the United States. And it's a very simple meditation. And I know that, that sometimes the first day can have some challenges. And so this is an invitation to have a little uh, oasis. This is a meditation that he taught that he said that would be really uh, a great meditation to die with. But also I think it's a great meditation that gives us a taste, just for a few moments, of freedom. And so it coincides with the breath and breathing in and breathing out. So as you breathe in and breathe out, these few breaths, just sensing what it's like to just let all types of wanting or desiring just fall away. And in its place, gives rise to a sense of contentment and ease. Just for a few moments, Releasing, relinquishing this wanting, and conversely, relinquishing as you breathe in and out the not wanting, and in its place, the sense of contentment and ease that money cannot buy. Just with the breath, opening to that there's nothing more that you need to get, nothing that needs to be pushed away, and in its place, the taste of freedom, of contentment and ease, the clarity of the mind and the heart.
just for these few breaths, these few moments, breathing in and breathing out, contentment and ease, the relinquishing of wanting and not wanting, and the clarity of mind and heart. In these moments, the end of suffering and deep peace. And so I'll just end with a reading from Tsongkhapa. He says that the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish the body, it's yours, this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your goal, the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. May all beings discover the gateways into their hearts and experience peace. So thank you so much for um, listening and um, we'll have some walking practice and um, perhaps um, invite you if it feels appropriate to reflect on those messengers and what brings you to this practice. So thank you so much and uh, we'll have a closing sit. The bell will ring and, and um, at nine o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.